It is Father's Day, so happy Father's Day to you dads out there. Would you, uh, would you just give a hand to our dads in the midst? Would you do that? One of the greatest honors of my life is being a dad, and so thankful for uh, my four kids and the way God has blessed us in that way. And we come to this day realizing that it is a day of absolute celebration and joy as we give thanks to God for our dads and what they mean to us. We also know that as we come to this day, there are people that are celebrating that or not celebrating that differently. Perhaps your dad wasn't uh, the model of what a godly man should be, and the day is a difficult day. Or perhaps, like uh, me, this day carries a different significance because your father has passed away. Many of you know my dad passed away just a few days ago, and so today is different for me. Um, And I want to start today with just a little bit of pastoral privilege before we launch into the message and say thank you. Uh, I I wasn't here last week. Uh, My father passed away uh, a little over a week and a half ago, and uh, I wasn't able to be with you last week because we were taking care of everything in Dyersburg with my mom and visitation and the funeral and all of that. And uh, I just want to say thank you to you as a church for the cards, uh, we have been uh, overwhelmed with cards at the house, with text messages, with Facebook messages, with social media posts, with gifts that you have generously given. We are thankful to you for that. My dad was a special man, an awesome man. And he is proof. I, I was, I was uh, having a conversation this morning with Jackie Norman about... Um, about dad, Jackie was part of many of you that came to either visitation, made that long drive, or for some of you, a short flight apparently, um, to Dyersburg for the visitation and the funeral. And Jackie said something that just kind of stuck to me this morning. She said, my dad, they, they were there. I wish all of you could have been at the funeral to hear the words that people said about him, could have been a part of the visitation to see the four hours, three hours on Sunday night, hour on on Monday when people were lined up out the door to say um, what they felt about him and how he'd impacted them. And Jackie just said to me earlier today, she said, your dad is proof that you don't have to have a worldly position of power or prestige or money or platform to make a huge difference in the world. Um, Dad was just faithful to the Lord. He served in local ICUs and took snacks to them on Sunday mornings when the local hospital wouldn't have them out because it was a weekend and they haven't had to work. Dad would go do that. Uh, A couple of things I want to tell you about my dad, and then we're going to launch into the message, which is a Father's Day message, but a couple of things I want you to know about the impact he made. One is my dad was a prayer warrior. And people sometimes throw that word around, but my dad was a prayer warrior. I remember years ago, He worked at a uh, rubber manufacturing plant. It it was filthy. I mean, carbon black everywhere. Uh, It was the largest uh, employer in Dyersburg. Dad started working for them as a truck driver and eventually doing long-haul trucking across the United States with my grandfather, his father-in-law. And they they drove for a couple of years till Dad got off the road because he was missing out on the childhood uh, of his kids. And so... um, he, he worked at Colonial Rubber Work. It was a filthy place, and he had, he worked in the truck shop as the truck shop manager, and he had the tiniest little office you could see in the midst of this filthy place. And I remember walking into his office one day, 
And he just showed there was something sticking, a, a, a post-it note, really, size piece of paper with the smallest writing you could see on it. And I said, Dad, what's that? And he said, that's my prayer list. And I have it on my desk. People would come by and tell me they were praying, they needed prayer, and I would pray. And so I knew Dad prayed like that, and I knew he talked to me all the time about people who prayed for many of you in this room he prayed for. Uh, when I got home after Dad passed away and we were going through some of his stuff, Mom showed me where the day he had left to go to the hospital on la- the Monday, it would be two weeks ago tomorrow, he had set out his Bible that he read every morning and his prayer list. Well, his prayer list was two or three pages of uh, normal paper size papers, you know, eight and a half by 11, that had the smallest print on every line, just hundreds of names on front and back. And then there was a stack of papers that was dad had requested from the church office. I didn't know this till just last week. Dad had requested from the church office a list with everybody's name on it. Because one day he was listening to a sermon by a a pastor in Memphis, and he talked about the importance of praying by name for people you care about. And so dad had this list, and mom said this was at least the second list he got for them because he wore the first one out. And dad would put a check mark next to their name when he prayed for them. So I took a picture of a portion of one page of that. Dyersburg is a church that's larger than us, and this is one of his last lists that he had. When I, when I actually looked at it, he was on the W's. He almost made it all the way through again. Every day he would pray consistently for people. There is no telling the amount of people that lives were impacted by my dad's prayers. Here's the second thing I'll tell you about my dad that was kind of cool. My dad... <laughs> My dad, most people would never know this about him. My dad had an artistic side. I do not um, at all. My dad taught himself calligraphy, and he would often do calligraphy on our cards and other stuff. And then he taught himself origami, because why not, right? But one particular thing he taught himself origami was how to take dollar bills and turn them into a cross. This is his lock screen. And he would take dollar bills and he would turn them into a cross and he would give these out at various places and different people to different places to people just in general. Um, he, he used it as a testimony because the way he folded them and God we trust always ended up right here. And he would talk about the importance of trusting in the Lord. And there's only one way to the father. Dad, I have no idea how many crosses my dad gave out. No idea. My brother-in-law from Brandon, Mississippi, who's a pastor in Brandon, Mississippi, called me when he heard about my dad, and he said, I, he said, as I'm talking to you, I'm looking at the cross that's on my desk that your dad made for me. Um, the day after the funeral, we went to the Farm Bureau office where my mom has her insurance, and we were working through some of the details you have to work through following a death. And the insurance agent said, before you sit down, let me show you something. And over on my bookshelf was a cross that my dad made for him. We had at least five people bring us their crosses at the funeral. People I didn't even know my dad knew that had been impacted by it. And middle of last week, I got a Facebook message 
from my uh, from one of my high school classmates who I hadn't talked to in years, and she sent me a message that said, "I'm sorry, I've not been on I've not been on social media. I didn't get to see where your dad passed away until the funeral was over." She said, "I want to tell you a story." She said, "My son." was baptized in November of 2021, and on the day he was baptized, your dad gave him a cross made out of dollar bills. He has that with his baptism certificate, and he thinks of it every time he sees it about how the Lord has changed his life. The first question that we ask after realizing how many of this he has made is, how much money did my dad give away over his lifetime? But we just think about this. The impact of a simple gesture. My dad was a great man. He is eternally healed from a disease that was ravaging his body. He had six bypasses 20 years ago. He had a lung removed 13 years ago. And a year ago, he was diagnosed with cancer in the only lung he had left. And I am so glad he is healed. And I will miss him greatly. But one day, we're going to see each other again. And if you knew my dad, I said this at the graveside. I don't know if it's theologically correct or not. If they have smoked baloney at the marriage supper of the Lamb. But if they do, it's his. And we're going we're gonna to feast. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we jump into your text this morning and talk about what it means to lead a life that parents, that helps those of us that are parents, those of us that will be parents, Lord, that helps us to understand what it looks like to be gospel-centered and to be what you've called us to be. Lord, I pray that you will just give us wisdom as we open your words. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm going to give you an address, and I don't know that it will mean anything to you. 2648 West Grand Boulevard. 2648 West Grand Boulevard. It's a home in Detroit, Michigan that is modest. In fact, back several years ago, you could drive by it without ever noticing anything about it. There was nothing conspicuous about it. In fact, it was just another house in the middle of the street in Detroit, Michigan. But in 1959, a young man who had a vision bought that house. And although for most of its existence, it was nondescript up until that point, if you would have begun to watch that house shortly after 1959, when this young man started bought it, you would start to notice some people walking in and out of the house that honestly at the time, nobody who would know who they were, and yet within 10 to 15 years would be world famous. Smokey Robinson, Diana Ross, The Temptations, The Four Tops, would all walk in and out of that house. Because that house is known as Hitsville, USA. They named it Hitsville, USA, because it was where Motown started. And I love that story because I think of the impact of a house on the world. A nondescript, normal house. Didn't always have Hitsville, USA written above the top of it there. 
that changed the music industry forever and brought some of the biggest hits in the history of the world. When I think about my dad, one of the things I think about is riding around with him and his El Camino. You ever seen El Camino? We called it the Trar. It's a truck car mix. Listening to Motown, Four Tops and Temptations and Otis Redding and Marvin Gaye. And we think about how it impacted the world. And the question I want to look at today, or not the question, the statement I want to think about, the the idea that I want to think about is that the way God intends for us to live our lives is that our homes, no matter how nondescript they are, are intended to make a global impact and that our homes matter. That your home, as insignificant as you may think it is, matters in the kingdom of God. Because what they are in reality is that our homes are the launching pads for the next generation that's going to impact the world. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about parenting and what that looks like and what the Bible kind of says. And there's no way we can be exhaustive in two weeks about what parenting is. But over the next couple of weeks, I want to just give a little bit of an idea of what parenting looks like according to Scripture. And some of you are here, and that is right where you are. You have sippy cups that stink under the van seats right now. Can I get an amen from those of us that are past that? Amen. I mean, some of you are in the midst of that. Some of you are in the midst of it with elementary school kids and all of the activities that are starting to pile up and that what seemed like a short little respite of having things all the time are going crazy. Some of you are like me in the teenage years where you've got things going on all the time, middle school and high school and sports and clubs and friends and kids that are driving and you're in the midst of that transition from your house. One one of mine is on an internship in North Carolina this summer. Like you're in the midst of that. And some of you say, I'm not anywhere near that. Maybe it's not on your radar yet. And you're like, please, please, let's don't think about that. And so you say, well, my kids are gone. And yet I've told you this year after year, it seems like I've used this multiple times in the last several years, but it's true. When I was at a church in seminary, they did a poll of the senior adults about what Bible study topics they wanted to study. And number one, by a large margin, was parenting. Because the reality is, and I'm not quite there yet, although we're moving that way quickly, more quickly than I would like sometimes, that sometimes the real parenting job begins once the kids get out of the house. And so wherever you are, I hope you'll listen because what's happening here is that God is laying forth important instructions for us about how he sees the passing on of the faith from one generation to the next. In fact, in Scripture, there are three institutions that God that God brings into existence that God creates in order to bring order and the passing on of the faith of our belief in him to the next generation. And the first happens right away in the very beginning of the book. Even before the fall, the family is established. The other two, by the way, are government. We see that a little bit later. We're to to keep people at bay, and we can have a conversation about what that means later. And then the last one is the church, that is his nation that we are moving forward. 
So just for the next couple of weeks, we're going to take a look at what does the family have, what place does it have in bringing up the next generation? Let me say real quickly about this. I'm not claiming in any way to be an expert. In fact, I used to be an expert, and I'm not anymore. Reminded of Steve Gaines, by the way, the preacher that preached that message that got my dad to pray specifically. Steve Gaines said, before I was a parent, I was an expert. After I had one, I had a few principles to live by. By the time I got to two, they were just suggestions. And by the third, I threw up my hands because I didn't know anything. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? All right? So I'm not up here as an expert, but I am here saying, what does God's word say to us? And we're in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Old Testament. And just a little background of what's happening here as, this, as the text comes on the screen. We're going to read verse 1 all the way through several verses here. Deuteronomy is Moses' farewell sermon, his farewell speech to the nation of Israel. They've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. I can imagine amongst them there's a little bit of like, all right, let's go, Moses, let's get over with. It's time to get to the promised land. Let's go. But Moses, if you remember, was not going to the promised land, right? Why was Moses not going to the promised land? He disobeyed God. He got angry, disobeyed, right? Struck the rock when God did not instruct him to. And because of that, he was not going into the promised land. And so this is an emotional moment for Moses. He is downloading his heart to his people, praying for them, asking them, cajoling them, encouraging them to keep at it, to follow the Lord, to obey. And he's downloading everything he can to them in this final message. This is the ultimate last lecture from Moses. And in the midst of it, he centers the passing of the faith from one generation to the next on the home. No outsourcing, but this is the important part. Chapter 6, verse 1 says, This is the command. The statutes and ordinance the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, so that you may follow them in the land you are about to enter and possess. Do this so that you may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life by keeping all the statutes and commands I'm giving you, your son and your grandson, and that they, you may have a long life. Listen, Israel, and be careful to follow them so that you will prosper and multiply greatly because the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These words that I've given you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorpost of your house and on your city gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he would give you a land with large and beautiful cities that you did not build, Houses full of every good thing that you did not fill them with, cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. And when you eat and are satisfied, be careful not to forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Fear the Lord your God. Worship him. Take your oaths in his names. Do not follow other gods, the gods of people around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God. 
Otherwise, the Lord your God will become angry with you and obliterate you from the face of the earth. Do not test the Lord your God as you tested him at Massa. Carefully observe the commands of the Lord your God, the decrees and the statutes he has commanded you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight, so that you may prosper and so that you may enter and possess the good land the Lord your God swore to give you ancestors by driving out all the enemies before you, as the Lord has said. A couple of things that I want you to see in the midst of this passage that are important for us. First of all, it's the goal, what it is that we are to transmit to our kids, what it is that we are to bring to them or put them in an environment to learn. Now, again, just as I said, I'm no expert on this. Another thing that I must tell you is it's not my job and it's not your job to save our kids or to make them followers of Jesus. There's only one Savior, and I am not him, and neither are you. But what we can do as parents, what we can do as families is place them in an environment where they are exposed to the ideas that we have and to see lived out what God is calling us to do. And the two motivating factors that ought to be what we lay before them on a regular basis is that we are to love God and fear God. We are to love God and fear God. That's right there in what they call the Shema, where he says, this is the commandment for you. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Jesus would quote that verse when he was asked what is the greatest commandment. He would quote this verse out of Deuteronomy. They would have known this verse because they would have said it multiple times a day. They would have written it literally because it talks about it on their doorpost. They would have had it on their wrist. They would have had every reminder they could about this particular verse that said that they were to love the Lord your God. And so part of our job, part of our responsibility as parents in a home is to build a home environment where our kids understand what it means to love the Lord. And that's in two primary ways. When we talk about the love of God, there are two primary ways that are mentioned here. And the first is in the way we do things. So our actions and the second is in our affections. It's what we do. Jesus says, if you love me, keep your, my commandments. In verse 4, when it says, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. What's interesting is that word in the original Hebrew, the word listen there, is a word that doesn't mean so much as hear. It doesn't mean so much as as the sound is coming in. Recognize that you understand the words that are being said. It's a word that literally means Take heed of or take notice of or one translation of that word can be obey. And if you want to understand the entire book of Deuteronomy in one word that Moses is conveying to the people, it is simply to obey. And so the first step that we show in the reality that we love the Lord is that we do what God calls us to do. That we act like God calls us to act. That we speak like God calls us to speak. That we think like God calls us to think. That we talk about people the way God wants us to talk about people. And so we want to build an environment in our homes of 
love of God through our actions, but also through our affections. And what I mean by that is our kids have to see that it is a real thing to us, that we love the Lord, that we don't just talk about him. We don't just say things about the Lord, that we love God, that he is a personal savior to us. And I don't mean by that he is mine and mine alone, but the Bible makes it very clear that God is a personal God who loves me, not just us, me, and that I have a relationship with him. I cannot imagine how anyone makes it through what I have been through in the last week and a half without a personal connection with God, a friendship. And one of the prayers that I have prayed about my own life, my own family, my own kids, is that they would understand that I have a love for God, that this is not my job, although it is, but it's the passion of my heart to follow Him. And here's what I want you to understand, that the correct order for those two is, is actually the opposite of what I have it there. Our actions flow from our affections. If you love me, if you really care, if you really do value the relationship we have, then you will keep my commandments, is what Jesus says. It's not keep my commandments and then we'll talk about the other stuff. It flows from a relationship with him. Deuteronomy 6 tells us that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our strength. And he says, and then you're to pass that on to your kids. You are to let them understand what that looks like. The second thing that we ought to instill or want to instill in our kids is to fear God, the fear of God. Not just the love of God, but the fear of God. Back in verse 1, it talks about that. These commands, I'm going to give you statutes and ordinance. Your Lord has commanded me to teach you so that you may follow him in the land. Do this, verse 2 says, so that you may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life. And then it talks again about obedience, about keeping the statutes I am giving you. Throughout all of chapter 6, throughout Deuteronomy, there is this essence of the fear of the Lord. And if you've grown up in church, you've heard this, but what does it mean to fear God? It means to have a reverence. It means to have a respect for Him. It also means that our God is big enough that we ought to be a little scared, fearful of the power. Maybe more than a little, and definitely more than we are now, where we flaunt about things that God has told us not to flaunt about, and don't worry about the repercussions of it. Our God is a mighty, jealous, powerful, holy Holy God. And we must fear Him. So what does that look like? Well, the, 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 the easiest way to say this, the, the most direct way to say this in our day and time is that we must take God seriously. We must take His Word seriously. We must take His commands seriously. We must take Him seriously. We must take who He is and what He is about seriously. So that's what we're trying to instill in our kids. And here's what I want you to understand. that The way that we pass this on to the next generation is that we want the attitudes of their heart to be changed. We want them to love God and to fear Him, to respect Him, to take Him seriously. And that is much more than just behavioral modification. You see, sometimes I think as parents... We get so caught up on making sure their behavior is okay, we miss what is going on at the level of the heart. 
And are they doing things just so they don't get punished? Are they doing things just to make me happy? Or are they genuinely changed in their heart, in their love of God, and their respect of Him? Because what God is after is heart change. Ted Tripp in Shepherding a Child's Heart says this, A change of behavior that does not stem from a change of heart is not commendable, it's condemnable. What he means there is, if we see behavior modification without life change, heart change, it will not last. That's the way God parents us. God talks about our relationship, and he disciplines like a father. We think about our heavenly father. In Ezekiel 36, he says that he's going to rip out our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. The point he's making there is, it's not enough just to change what we are. He'll later tell the Israelites who will go into the promised land and disobey He'll say, they'll start doing their worship stuff. He goes, listen, listen, stop doing all the worship stuff. Stop coming to my house. Stop doing all this stuff because you're doing all this as a show and your heart isn't here. It has not changed. And so your behavior doesn't justify your heart. So we are to instill a place of the fear of God and the love of God. So how do we do that? Four things and then we're done. First of all, if we're going to see real life change and see our kids have our faith passed on to the next generation, it's going to come in the form of relationship. Look at verse 6 again if you've got your Bibles open. He says, these words that are given today are to be on your heart. And then he gives these things. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorpost of your house and on your city gates. What does all have to do? Yeah, as he's talking about, like, this ought to be on your tongue all the time. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But, but what is understood and what is implied in this moment is that these people are spending time with their kids all the time. Now, it was a different place. It was a different society. Their kids were literally with them all the time. But in our place, in our society, in our day, we must understand that the most important relationships your kids have in their development of faith is you. You can't outsource that. Listen, Noah does a great job with our youth. Krista does a great job with our kids. Janetta does an awesome job with our preschool. They are phenomenal at their task. They are not the primary disciples of your kids. Or at least they shouldn't be. You are. We have some awesome Christian schools around here. But the Christian school that your child attends is not the primarily disciple, primary discipler of your kids. You are. And that only comes through relationships. When I was in seminary, um, I shared this part, part of my time there. Um, I worked afternoons. Went to school, Susan taught full time. Uh, I worked afternoons at a fine arts preschool. I was the teacher assistant. And my job was to get there and to take care of the kids until their parents picked them up, if their parents did pick them up at normal time. Now, this was an all-day preschool, and so it went from 8 o'clock to 3 o'clock. I stayed till 6, sometimes later if parents didn't pick up, because obviously you can't just shut the door with the kid inside and say goodbye. We were there until the last one got picked up. 
some days, based on the summer or breaks we were at school, I, I would volunteer to work the full day. And when I worked full day, that meant I had to get there at 7 because parents dropped off their kids. And I'll never forget, I would roll in at 6.55 and there would be three or four cars in the parking lot. And those were the parents that would not pick up their kids till 6.30 at night. And I thought about how much of their parenting they were passing over to us. Now, you're not probably not dropping your kids off. Maybe you are at 6.45 in the morning, and that's not the point of all of this. I think about in our society, years later, how easy it is to be with someone and yet absent from them. To be around someone and not present in the moment. And my prayer is that as a dad, that I would be with my kids in the moment with them when I can be. Because I can't lead without relationship. I can't be a dad without knowing my kids. That means sometimes I take on interests that I care nothing about. But my kids do. If you would have asked me seven years ago anything about the National Baptist Basketball Association, I wouldn't have had a clue. But now I know. Luke likes the NBA. I started watching it. I like it too, all right? I started watching the Marvel movies with Eli because just to have something to connect with. I have things with the girls. Ava and I watch cooking competition shows. Just trying to build a relationship. You can't lead what you don't have. Second thing that has to be a part, if you're going to see that develop, is integrity. Just means being real in who you are. Look at verse 3. Listen, Israel, be careful to follow them so that you may prosper and multiply greatly because it's promised you a land. Love the Lord your God. These words that I'm giving you today, verse 6, says that they are to be on your heart. What that means is they have to be a part of your life, that they are with you. They are a part of who you are. If you want your kids to be people that love the Lord and respect Him and fear Him, if you want that for your kids, it needs to be a part of who you are. Because they're watching you more than you ever imagined. I love watching golf. love watching the U.S. Open. It's been cool because it's in Los Angeles, and so it's on to like 10 o'clock at night playing last couple of days. A player that I always admired, even though I've kind of had my ups and downs with whether I like him or not, is Phil Mickelson. Y'all know Phil Mickelson? Anybody? Okay. What's the defining characteristic of Phil Mickelson as a golfer? What's different about him than most other golfers? He's left-handed, right? My father-in-law is a left-handed golfer, and so when I try to learn from him, I don't learn anything. Okay. Left-handers do it all different. Here's what I find interesting. I saw this again this week. I've read it before, but I saw it this week. Phil Mickelson is normally right-handed in almost everything he does. But he's one of the most famous and best, probably the best, left-handed golfer that has ever played the game. And so people started asking him why he played left-handed. And he would just say, I don't know, I just always played that way. 
And then they discovered a story that when Phil Mickelson was two or three years old, his dad was a golfer and took him to the golf course. And his dad took him to the range and said, hey, just just hang out over here and stay at the back. And so uh, Phil's dad began to hit. His dad was right-handed, and he would line up, and he would begin to swing the club. And Phil decided he wanted to be like his dad. And so he walked over and faced him. And the whole time his dad practiced like this, Phil was practicing left-handed, copying his dad as much as he could. Phil Mickelson is left-handed because he was trying to copy his dad. Now, don't take from that that sometimes our kids mess up trying to be like us, all right? The point is they're watching. And I'll be honest with you, outside of my life, no one in the world knows whether I live my faith out like my kids do. Relationship, integrity, Third thing is instruction. I mean, that's throughout here. Tell them about it. Buy them as a sign. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them again and again. Tell them stories. Tell them about this. Give them these words. Give these instructions again and again and again and again. But here's what I want you to understand very clearly. That the instruction is only as good as the relationship and the integrity has set the standard for If you're trying to instruct them in the ways of the Lord and you don't have a relationship and your integrity is not what it needs to be, that instruction is going to fall flat. So what are we instructing? We're teaching them a biblical worldview, the Bible as the basis for what we believe and what we do. Answering the basic questions of life. How did we get here? Well, God created us. What went wrong with this place? Well, sin entered the world through us, and we all choose to sin. Is there a way to fix that? Yes, through Jesus Christ. So what do we do now? Based on the love and the fear of God we have, we obey Him and live out His commands. That's the worldview that we are attempting to put everything through. That is the lens that we want to see the world through. What does the Bible say about this? What does God teach about this? What does my love for the Lord and my fear of Him, my respect for Him, teach me about how to handle this situation? What does my understanding of God's love of other people teach me about how I treat them, how I love them, how I help them, how I correct them, how I discipline them? Even in my discipline, I'm instructing my children. For better or for worse. And then the last thing is experiences. So we have a relationship with integrity. We instruct them. And at some point, we have to move towards a place where we are letting them learn and experience life. There's one counselor that talks about the protection and preparation weight scale in our lives as a parent. That part of our job as a parent is to protect our kids and part of our job as a parent is to prepare our kids. And the reality is, as they grow older, the weight shifts from protection to preparation. And that what we're wanting to do is to get them ready. I think about the quote more than I should because it's from a kid's movie from a long time ago. Um, Anybody remember Finding Nemo? Y'all remember Nemo? Okay. By the way, those Pixar movies of long ago, I think they've stopped this a little bit now. Like the first scene, everybody dies, and it's just sad, right? 
If you remember Nemo, that joyous little movie, Just Keep Swimming, Just Keep Swimming, starts with what? A fish coming and eating everybody but Nemo and his dad. Right. Y'all are looking at me like I don't understand this, right? That's what happens, okay? Spoiler alert for a 20-year-old movie, all right? And in the midst of that, Marlin, the dad, is talking after Nemo's gotten away, is talking to Dory, the fish, and he says, I just can't let anything happen to him. I can't let anything happen to him. And she looks at him, and if you know, Dory has memory losses. She says, well, if nothing ever happens to him, then nothing will ever happen to him. And the point she's making is, if you protect him all the time, he'll never experience a life. And at some point, the job of a parent is to launch them and to let them go, trusting the Lord that you have protected as long as you can, you have prepared them for what is to come, and it is time to launch them out for the glory of God. Moses is doing that in Deuteronomy. He's like a dad. He's like, and now you're going to go and you're going to take care of this stuff and this is what's going to happen and the Lord's going to provide, but you have to obey. So what does it mean to be a gospel-centered parent? Well, it means that we don't worry about behavior modification. We're worried about attitudes and we're trying to develop a love of God and a fear of God. And the way we do that is through building a relationship that is filled with integrity and instructing our kids and protecting them when necessary and preparing them to launch out to experience a life as believers and followers of Jesus Christ. And more than anything, we trust the Lord in that because I'm not capable of doing that. In fact, when you get to Deuteronomy chapter 31, Moses is on the last part of this, and God looks at him and basically says, Hey, Moses, I'm going to tell you a secret. They're going to enter, and they're going to disobey pretty quickly. And I'm going to give them the land anyways. See, my kids are 20, 16, almost 17, 13, and 10, almost 11. And there will be people saying, I don't have any regrets. I don't have any regrets. Those people are what we call liars. You know, I don't regret anything. Yeah, you do. I have lots of regrets. Man, lots of things I wish I could take back. Lots of things I wish I could do differently as a dad, as a husband, as a family. There are lots of things I wish I could do differently. And I have lots of regrets. But here's what I am thankful for. And this is some of you in this room. I know you're hearing this and you're like, oh. And I've blown it. Blown it. I don't have that relationship with my kids. My integrity is not, I'm definitely not the man that I claim to be. I haven't been good about the instructing thing. And I've been way too protective. I haven't let my kids experience, or I've let my kids experience way too much. I haven't protected them enough. And you're just beating yourself up about this. Here's what I am thankful for and what Deuteronomy teaches at the end when God says, they're going to go over and they're going to mess up and I'm going to forgive them and I'm going to give them the land anyways. Here's what I am glad. I've got regrets all day long about what's happened in my life as a parent over these last 20 plus years. But this is what I know. God's grace is much greater than my regrets. And in spite of how bad of a job I have done at times, God has been faithful. And I am trusting Him with my kids. I'm praying that He'll overlook my deficiencies and develop in them 
a love for him and a respect for who he is. And that's the prayer that I want you to pray for your family. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray in this day that your will would be done in this place. Here as it is in heaven, for the glory of your name, for the sake of your kingdom. I pray for the dads in this room, Lord. It's an awesome responsibility. Lord, it's heavy and burdensome and we worry. But Lord, it is a privilege. Help me, Lord. Help us to embrace the privilege and embrace the task. I pray for the moms in this room, some of whom are doing this by themselves, without a spouse, without a dad around to help, or with a dad that's not committed to you. And Lord, I pray that you would just give them the strength they need in this moment, the encouragement they need to keep going. And Lord, to show us all the places in our lives that we can improve, Lord, but to be reminded of your grace that makes improvement possible. And Lord, I pray that you would bury deep within us a love of you. Show us again your love so that we be reminded of your love for us, that we might fall in love with you more. And Lord, that you would help us to do what you call us to do, that we would live and take you and your word and your commands seriously. And Lord, that we would pass that on to the next generation for the sake of your name and for the spread of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.